This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Daily Show, The Progressive, The Colbert Report, Counterspin, The Bugle, On the Media, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Le Show, and Countdown with Keith Olbermann with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. One week from today, next Tuesday, is officially deadline day in Washington, the final day for Republicans in Congress and President Obama to strike a deal on the debt ceiling and avoid sending the country into a self-imposed default for the first time in our history. At this hour last night, the prospect of reaching that sort of deal took the latest turn in a journey that's had a whole lot of turns. A primetime address from the president um, aimed at, shall we say, pressuring Republicans into finally reaching some sort of agreement. But if you were tuning in last night, as I was, hoping that you would see some grown-ups really close to compromise, that's not at all what you saw. Instead, it was President Obama and Speaker John Boehner looking like they were as far apart as they've ever been in this now months-long fight. And today... Just after their dueling primetime speeches, President Obama made it clear that he would not accept just any compromise when he officially threatened to veto the plan that's favored right now by John Boehner and House Republican leaders. Late tonight, Speaker Boehner's office announced that he's going to be rewriting that plan because it doesn't achieve as much in savings as he originally claimed it did. Now, given the sort of dire nature of where these talks stand right now, There is still at least one remedy that's been bouncing around Washington these days that suggests President Obama doesn't actually need John Boehner at all, that he can just raise the debt ceiling on his own without John Boehner and without House Republicans. For weeks now, the White House and President have said they don't intend to take this sort of dramatic unilateral action, but this policy is one that's enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. It's part of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was one of three amendments passed in the years immediately following the Civil War. And interestingly enough, President Obama cited this Civil War error during his primetime speech last night. We have put to the test time and again the proposition at the heart of our founding that out of many, we are one. We've engaged in fierce and passionate debates about the issues of the day. But from slavery to war, from civil liberties to questions of economic justice, we have tried to live by the words that Jefferson once wrote. Every man cannot have his way in all things. Without this mutual disposition, we are disjointed individuals, but not a society. I used to live in Chicago. And given how often this former state senator from Illinois has asked us to think of him in the mold of Abraham Lincoln, President Obama specifically name-checking slavery in his speech last night invites us to ask, what might we learn from that moment in American history? Right now, we keep hearing over and over again from Republicans in Congress that Washington is broken. And while there may be some merit to that, There's really only been one time in our history when Washington was truly broken, as in literally broken in half. And there are some actual lessons to be learned from the Civil War that can just as easily be applied today. For one thing, you want to know what the country amassed a lot of during the Civil War? Debt. 
The U.S. government went deep into the red during the Civil War. The Union had to borrow and spend all sorts of money that it didn't have in order to fight and win that war. Moral of the story? Debt itself is not inherently evil. Debt matters, but preservation of the country, economically or otherwise, matters a whole lot more. Lincoln was prepared to find a way to pay the bills so that this nation would not perish from the earth. Another lesson from then that could just as easily apply today, countries at war need to raise revenue in order to pay for those wars. One of the enormous advantages the North had over the South during the Civil War, one of the reasons they were ultimately able to prevail, is because they had more money. And where did they get that money? You guessed it, tax revenues. Abraham Lincoln imposed the country's first federal income tax in 1861 in order to help pay for the war effort. (laughs) A novel sort of concept, right? New taxes to pay for a new war? The fact that we haven't imposed any new taxes over the past decade means that we are essentially using a pre-19th century model to pay for the wars that we've decided to fight. But perhaps more important than anything else, The Civil War was the moment in our history when we established the very notion of the full faith and credit of the United States government. It was the adoption of this aforementioned 14th Amendment to the Constitution, the one that states that the U.S. debt shall not be questioned. After the Civil War, after racking up all of this debt, the U.S. Congress essentially declared to the entire country and to the world that we are good for it, that the United States is a good credit risk for our lenders because we honor our debts. That's the moment at which the government said, by constitutional requirement, if we the people owe you, we'll pay you back. We just will. And so to risk that credit at this moment is to ask us to go back to a pre-Lincoln moment in our republic when our word wasn't necessarily our bond. Seven days from right now, or sooner, that word may take a major hit. Drawing upon the lessons of the Civil War serves as just, not just a reminder about our monetary policy and the usefulness of debt, but the difference between a real crisis and, frankly, a manufactured one. In this moment, as bad as things are, the fact is we could solve our problems tomorrow, heck, by midnight tonight. Congress could simply say, in what is not even an act of courage, just an act of regular governing, hey, we're going to raise the debt ceiling today. And we're going to address these other issues, important issues, in the way that politicians always do, which is we'll fight it out, and whoever's policies the American people like best, they'll vote for that party. Instead of that, what we have is people seceding from the talks. We have people who are willing to launch the country into a potential economic crisis when there need not be one at all. So is Washington broken? Maybe, but it's not the result of any real crisis like we faced before. It's the result of a totally manufactured one. Is it broken? Can we work it out? Let's light up the town, scream out
the nation, the nation clearly is in dire straits with regards to the debt ceiling crisis. For more on its possible impact, we're joined by Daily Show senior economist Jason Jones. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. Jason, if the experts uh, are to be believed, inaction on the debt ceiling and deficit reduction would be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. But the negotiations have thus far seemingly brought out the worst in our political and pundit class. That's right. And if the conversation continues this way, we could very well hit the national bullshit ceiling. <laughs> well, that, that would be catastrophic. That's right. And as you know, John, the national bullshit ceiling, or to put it in layman's terms, the amount of bullshit people are actually willing to take, has slowly been creeping up. Where, where are we at now with the bullshit ceiling right now? Right now, Americans have pretty much headed up to about here with this bullshit. <laughs> but by the end of next month, it seems likely we'll have had it up to here. <laughs> Bullshit-wise. And the last time I checked, we don't have poo gills. And, and what would the ramification of that be? Well, as you know, historically, the balance in our country has always been money talks and bullshit walks. But this recent surge has so bloated bullshit, it is no longer ambulatory. <laughs> William Jennings Bryan must be rolling over in his grave. William Jennings Bryan? What does he have to do with this? Well, as you know, he was one of the earliest crusaders against shitflation. <laughs> Hence his famous, his famous 1896 speech, You will not crucify mankind upon a cross of poop. As you know, Jennings never worked blue. No, I know, and uh, clearly a couple of history majors laughed at that. Anyway, <laughs> I gotta say, I'm, I'm very impressed. You really know your bullshit. Well, got a BA and BS. Well, where'd you go to school, Brown? Brown? Very mature, very mature, John. You know very well I went to Anal Roberts University. So, it's a good school. Go fighting fishers. Mm -hmm. You know, we're close to hitting the bullshit ceiling. Mm -hmm. Why should we be worried? John, if we reach the point where the amount of bullshit exceeds the amount of actual things, we will effectively default on reality. It's already started happening. If you want an abortion, you go to Planned Parenthood, and that's well over 90% of what Planned Parenthood does. He did call his office trying to ask uh, uh, what he was talking about there, and uh, it ha you know what, I just want to give it to you verbatim here. It says his remark was not intended to be a factual statement. Did you see that? When John Kyle got called on his bullshit, his response was to get angry at people for expecting something other than bullshit. <laughs> But why, Jason, why can't we just, in this time of crisis, why can't we just raise the bullshit ceiling? John, this isn't some arbitrary figure like the debt ceiling. This is real. <laughs> and if we can't cut the bullshit, then there's only one solution. We as a nation need to start replacing shit with farts from our butt. <laughs> Come on, Jason. That's... What? Factual assessments of reality-based truths. Or farts, as they're called. And we need politicians and journalists willing to call bullshit on the bullshit. But you said the farts... <laughs> would come from our butt. 
Yes, bold, uncompromising truth-telling. But, why, what did you, oh, farts from our butt. John, grow up. I like part of Obama's debt speech. He was right to blame the Republicans for trying to hold the economy captive. He was right to point out that they're doing so to prevent their corporate and wealthy friends from having to pay a single extra dime in taxes. He was right to say that's not fair. And he was right to underline the fact that America's wars have cost us dearly. He was also right to finally try to mobilize the American public to put pressure on Republicans in Congress. I only wish he'd done so on a different subject, though, like Medicare for All, because, look, what Obama was asking people to do was get behind a plan to make historic cuts in government spending, as he put it. That's fundamentally a Republican position, and it'll be terrible for our fragile economy. He's also already signaled his willingness to cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, which Republicans have been trying to do from day one. So President Obama has conceded that he's willing to pay most of the ransom that the Republicans have been demanding all along. It's late in the game to try to mobilize support from the bottom. Obama should have tried that a lot earlier in his term, and he and we would have been a lot better off. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestofleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Do you think you're better off alone? Do you think you're better off alone? Folks, the bitter partisan wrangling in Washington over our nation's finances has hit rock bottom. The president is blaming House Republicans, John Boehner is pointing fingers at the president, and Joe Biden is locked in a heated battle with a vending machine that won't release his Teddy Grahams. <laughs> the last night, in his televised pre-spons to John Boehner, the president stooped to a new, new low. A predecessor of mine made the case for a balanced approach by saying this. Would you rather reduce deficits and interest rates by raising revenue from those who are not now paying their fair share? Or would you rather accept larger budget deficits, higher interest rates, and higher unemployment? Those words were spoken by Ronald Reagan. How dare you use the R word? 
That word belongs to us. We conservative Americans can say Reagan to each other because we use it affectionately. I say it all the time. What up, my Gipper? Gipper, please. All the Gippers in the house say no taxes. We'll work on that. But I'm not surprised that Obama is playing the Reagan card. He's just trying to shore up one of the left's long discredited ideas, the United States government. <laughs> so the House Republicans we elected last November saw this failure of leadership coming. They told us that the government doesn't work. And as soon as they got into office, they proved it. <laughs> well, since nobody else has got the balls to call this one, I will. Congress will not raise the debt ceiling by next Tuesday, and America will default. And that will wrap things up for this great experiment in representative democracy. <laughs> hey, 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 no, America had a good run. We had a very good run. Looking back, we may have stayed in the game too long. Should have gotten out after the moon landing, or when that tiny girl stuck the landing with a broken ankle. The good news is, the good news is the deadline's not until August 2nd, so we've still got a whole week to finish off America's bucket list. <laughs> For instance, before our society collapses into roving cannibalistic motorcycle gangs, I've always wanted to try bubble tea. It looks fun. Oh, things there, the surprises, tasty little balls there. Oh, also, we should invade Iran. We know it won't be a quagmire because we got to be out by next Tuesday. <laughs> and we should finally just do it with Canada. <laughs> the tension's been building for years. I'm talking crazy last night on Earth, grabbing borders, slapping Rockies, half in French, no eye contact, eating poutine out of each other's Great Lakes nasty nasty. That was a crowd pleaser. And you know what? Screw it. Let's finally get a tattoo. Maybe a Chinese character on Florida. It'll be a great way to start learning the language. The corporate media often obsess over moving the political discussion to the so-called center, which in practical terms is often well to the right of public opinion. The ongoing debate over the debt ceiling is no different. Forget about winning the future, Barack Obama wants to win the center. That's what the Washington Post told readers on July 25th under the headline, Obama, big deal on debt, a gamble to win the center. 
The article explained that Obama was, quote, making Republicans an offer they couldn't refuse in exchange for trillions of dollars in cuts, including to Medicare and Social Security, Republicans would have to agree to a fraction of that in increased tax revenue, close quote. Reporter Zachary Goldfarb explained that, quote, Obama's political advisors have long believed that securing such an agreement would provide an enormous boost for his 2012 campaign, close quote, because, it is explained, it would improve the president's standing among political independents. Well, this may be what the White House insiders are saying, but a newspaper has a responsibility to point out that what they are saying is contradicted by reality. The reality that every poll tells the same story. People across the political spectrum do not support cuts to programs like Social Security and Medicare. But in the corporate media, a wildly unpopular policy is heralded as centrist. More on this muddled view of centrism, any clear-eyed observer of the Washington debt debate would acknowledge that Republican intransigence in the face of repeated compromises offered by Democrats, to the point that, as American prospects Jamil Bowie and others have noted, the original proposal put forward by Republican House Speaker John Boehner is now the template for the Democratic plan. But elite media have a fetish for partisan balance, even when it doesn't fit events. It's hard to overstate media's faithfulness to this distorted presentation. Here's host Christiane Amanpour on ABC's This Week on July 24th. This week, with tempers flaring, the rhetoric has boiled over. Exhibit A, the war of words between two Florida Congress members, Republican Alan West and Democrat Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Wasserman Schultz fired the first shot on the House floor, criticizing West for supporting a debt deal that would cut Medicare. West's response, a furious email to his colleague when he said, you are the most vile, unprofessional, and despicable member of the U.S. House of Representatives. You've proven repeatedly that you are not a lady and therefore shall not be afforded due respect from me. So how does Washington move past this partisan rancor? That again was Christian Amanpour. Excuse me? Wasserman Schultz criticized West's support for a particular bill. She didn't say anything outrageous, which is why ABC didn't air a clip or even quote from her speech, the one where she fired the first shot in this war of words. West's intemperate you-are-not-a-lady response would suggest he's the one with the problem here. But you can't say it that way, just like you're not supposed to say that Republicans are refusing to support Obama's very Republican budget offers. story this week that's to america that's to america that andy as we've touched on in the last few bugles america has got a bit of a problem with debt at the moment 
they haven't been particularly careful with their money and haven't really prepared at all for their retirement as an empire, which, as China will testify, is just around the corner. <laughs> they've been they've been very irresponsible with some particularly unnecessary luxury wars in recent time. <laughs> uh, the Iraq War was the equivalent of a middle-aged man buying a Porsche. It really smacks of a nation experiencing a midlife crisis and trying to capture its youth once more. <laughs> America's current debt ceiling is $14.3 trillion, which means that it has pretty much maxed out its own credit card. And the three options seem to be, do you, one, cut that credit card in two, two, do you apply for more credit, or do you, three, cut it in two, then tape it back together and hope the shops will still accept it. <laughs> and it might be worth just briefly explaining how we've got to this point, because at first glance you can find yourself thinking, this is f***ing insane. <laughs> However, I must say that after you've heard this explanation, you are probably going to find yourself arriving at the same conclusion anyway. It is quite impressive for a country to be this dysfunctional. I believe after you've heard some of this explanation, the main question is going to be, how do these Americans put on their trousers in the morning? <laughs> 14.3 trillion, John. That is, that is a big... To me, that is the Sistine Chapel of debt ceilings. <laughs> it's it is, true. It is a truly mind-boggling achievement that people in centuries to come will still look back on and think, wow, that's f***ing incredible. How on earth did they do that? That is the product of a truly special mind. No normal yeah. person could have done that. <laughs> Mankind was involved in a number like this? Surely not. It seems touched by the hand of God himself. <laughs> The, the US government gets a lot of bills every month, Andy. That's how it gets this high, uh, including military salaries, interest on existing loans, Medicare, and a subscription to Cigar Aficionado that they keep forgetting to cancel. Uh, the current debt limit was hit back in May. But that deadline didn't turn out to be quite as deadly as deadlines are supposed to be. <laughs> this is because they managed to extend the drop-dead deadline date to August the 2nd, which they insist is as deadly as deadlines get, and that no one wants to test the deadliness of this particular drop-dead deadline unless they want a large bowl of death on their hands. <laughs> and they managed to cleverly extend this date by employing various economic tricks, such as postponing payments into government pension schemes and using better-than-expected tax revenues. And Timothy Geithner really is part economist, part children's party magician. He could make it look like a budget deficit has completely disappeared before simply lifting up a plastic cup and revealing that it was actually there the whole time. <laughs> But uh, still no agreement, John. There seems to be uh, an awful lot of baffling negotiation going on. It seems that the politicians of America have been horse-trading like a French chef preparing to cater for a lavish wedding. But, <laughs> but still still no agreement. And quite a lot of petty political point-scoring seems to be going on, John. Um, I, I can't say that I've been following this particularly closely because I've been trying to write some unbelievably idiotic jokes. But um, uh, what's the latest score in the, in the political point-scoring? Well, it's currently nil-nil, Andy, with both teams looking both angry and uninterested, if that's even possible. I mean, remember, the key thing is here, this isn't the government wanting to borrow money to buy things in the future. This is the government wanting to borrow money to pay for things that they've already bought. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a teenager going up to their parents and saying, please can I borrow $20 for a new car that I've just bought? And the parents saying, wait, hold on, you've already bought the car? And... Didn't it cost more than $20? And the teenager saying, you're quite right, it did. Can I have $35,000, please? <laughs> the problem is that all government borrowing in America has to be approved under the Constitution by Congress. Now, because 
there's no real... The strange thing is there's no particular need to have a debt ceiling other than to force massive arguments on a semi-regular basis. <laughs> Most other countries don't have a debt ceiling. They just have an inbuilt sense of what they can and can't afford. <laughs> well, I think we, recent history suggests that they yeah, don't that's, have that. Yeah, that is true. That is true. <laughs> I could, I could almost sense the Greeks waking up at the, in the afternoon over there saying, what? That's not true. Anyway, please keep it down. I'm napping. Again. America! America! For the two and a half thousandth year in a row. America is like a, is like a gambling addict that knows it has a problem. Walking into a casino saying, I have all the money that I'm going to spend here in my hand. Please don't anyone lend me any more, no matter how hard I beg you later on. Then, when they need more money later in the night, trying to win back some of their losses, they end up having to either use their car keys as collateral or start offering cut-rate hand jobs in the car park <laughs> to raise enough to keep going. <laughs> the I've got a system. I've got a system. <laughs> it's going to come good. It can't land on black two times in a row. <laughs> The uh, the overall borrowing cap was actually first introduced by Congress in 1917 to make it simpler for the government to finance its efforts in World War One, and that was a war worth throwing some money at, Andy. <laughs> you got a lot of bang for your buck back then. There was no way Congress was going to feel shortchanged. Yeah. Also, you saved a lot on all those pensions that you didn't have to pay out afterwards as well. <laughs> That's true. It was a win-win and massive loss. Bottom uh, line, bottom line, it made sense. Trench warfare <laughs> made sound economic sense from a long-term financial picture. But how many governments would have the courage to say that these days? Yeah, yeah? you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, John, this goes back a long way, basically to uh, 1791, when George Washington slapped one war of independence on his nation's credit card for the now bargain price of 75 million dollars and I guess he probably didn't think at that point that his inspirational fight today pay tomorrow scheme would still be quite so avidly pursued in the early 21st <laughs> century but I think um, a lot of it comes down to the problems of democratic government John because essentially the art of democratic government is to spend vast amounts of money on being seen to be doing stuff mm -hmm. financed either by spending money you don't have or cutting back spending on actually doing anything and therefore <laughs> governments basically won't economise significantly because the less they spend the less they can appear to be doing and therefore the less reason they have to exist but I guess we do need to keep things in perspective John because let's be honest the Black Death was worse um, you know, we might have tough mm. times at the moment, but um, at least we can it's sneeze true. without having to cancel all of next week's appointments. <laughs> that's true, Andy. Yeah. Well, that's that's the first thing that's not been depressing that I've heard regarding commentary <laughs> around this story. There were warnings uh, of <laughs> about things like this uh, happening. Um, let me quote from Abraham Lincoln, the professional ex-president and two-time hat wearer of the year, who said this in 1864... He said, I see in the near future a crisis approaching that unnerves me and causes me to tremble for the safety of my country. Corporations have been enthroned, an era of corruption in high places will follow, and the money power of the country will endeavour to prolong its reign by working upon the prejudices of the people until the wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic is destroyed. I feel at this moment more anxiety for the safety of my country than ever before, even in the midst oh of war. Oh my so, god. I can't say this kind of crept up on us like the once in a oh millennium, my. once in a century credit tsunami that, um, that, uh, was it Greenspan oh. described it as? Thomas Jefferson. I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property in their until their children wake up homeless on the continent their forefathers conquered. Oh. 
There you go. The, oh, here's boy. another one. The national budget must be balanced. The public debt must be reduced. The arrogance of the authorities must be moderated and controlled. Payments to foreign governments must be reduced if the nation doesn't want to go bankrupt. So this warning, do you know how long ago that was said, John? <laughs> how long? 55 BC by Cicero. <laughs> no <laughs> have been way. ignoring that advice for over 2,000 years now, John. <laughs> And there's no sign that we're going to start gnawing it. <laughs> <laughs> the As the deadline on Tuesday approaches, the tone of the discussion varies from apocalyptic visions of the world collapsing uh, to almost creepy positivity. Because Harry Reid hinted of a potential compromise uh, at the uh, middle of the week when he said... Magic things can happen here in Congress in a very short period of time under the right circumstances. He then pointed at a wardrobe and said, maybe there's a mystical world somewhere in there and we'll all go on an adventure which will teach us about the importance of cooperation. We'll learn these efforts from a mystical lion in a not-that-subtle religious <laughs> allegory. And even though we'll be in there for months, when we come out, only seconds will have gone by. Then he paused and looked at the floor and said... Or maybe we are f***ed. <laughs> and likewise, the President tried to fire up the American people whilst actually annoying them by interrupting the Bachelorette for a presidential address on TV this week, and he said, let's seize this moment to show why the United States of America is still the greatest nation on Earth. Not because we can still keep our words and meet our obligations, but because we can still come together as one nation. Before saying... Ah, oh, it. Even I don't believe that. Uh, let me try again. Let me let me just let, let me just go back and try that again. We're what now? We're live. Oh fudge! So there has been a lot of petty political point scoring and points being notched out by both sides. But the problem is that the people notching the points are essentially on the same side. It's all very reminiscent of that famous football match in the recent Sporting Allegory Cup, in which America and China played each other. Uh, and half the US team were trying to score in one goal and half the team in the other goal, whilst the Chinese sat back thinking, well, this is all going very well indeed. <laughs> America has raised its debt ceiling multiple times, and usually it's nothing more than a formality to get it done. Under Ronald Reagan, the Republican-styled greatest fiscal president in the history of the galaxy, <laughs> the debt limit was raised 18 times. And the real shitstorm at the centre of this volcano of pain is that Congress also gets to set the government spending commitments and tax-raising powers, which means that any administration can be required to spend more than it earns while being prevented from borrowing any money to make up the difference. Essentially, Congress can hand the President a shit sandwich and just sit back and watch him have to eat it. <coughs> Come on, Mr President, we're not leaving until that plate is clean. <laughs> But it seems no-one's prepared to back down on these things, John. It's pretty much like the Titanic, which went down with the captain proudly announcing, well, at least I did not compromise my principles. Boats <laughs> should go in straight lines. You cannot show weakness to an iceberg. It will punish you. I've made my point, and if I had to get very wet to do so, well, so be it. And this looks like being another triumph of disruption for the Tea Party. Although, at this rate, the only tea they'll be able to afford to drink in America will be economy tea bags cut with dried mouse droppings, and they'll be <laughs> dunking biscuits made of disused commemorative Michael Dukakis coasters into it. <laughs> the markets have actually been 
relatively stable as this deadline fast approaches, with everyone, I think, just assuming, well, there's no way they're actually going to default. There's no way they do something that stupid. But it's like watching a toddler holding a spider in his hand and thinking, there's no way he's going to eat that. Nine times out of ten, you're probably right. But unfortunately, that means that 10% of the time, that spider is going into the toddler's mouth. <laughs> and you've just got to be clear about what kind of toddler you're dealing with as a nation. Is America the kind of toddler who delicately puts the spider back on the ground? Or is America the kind of toddler that swallows that spider, then bursts into tears and demands a new spider? Now, there's, there's no right answer to that, but there's also no way that it's the first one. <laughs> well, of course, the problem is, allowing America a debt ceiling that high is like leaving a child unattended in a locked shed for an afternoon <laughs> with a five-litre tub of ice cream. You are going to come back to find an ice cream-covered child complaining that you've made it feel sick. <laughs> This, here, if you can stomach it, here are some of the details of each side. Each side at the moment have detailed proposals over the extent and manner in which the other side can go f*** themselves. But detailed economic plans supported cohesively by either party have proved quite hard to come by. Republicans have proposed um, uh, raising the debt ceiling by just enough to fund the government for another six to eight months to allow more time for negotiations. Which, completely coincidentally, I'm sure, would be around the run-up to the 2012 presidential <laughs> elections. And Timothy Geithner responded to that suggestion by doing another of his special magic tricks. This one involved making all the fingers on his hands disappear but one. And some Democrats have backed a longer extension, but that will basically involve both sides arguing the distance with which everyone should aim to kick the can down the road. The <laughs> truth is, this cannot go on indefinitely, and both sides are getting involved in a f***ing dangerous piece of brinksmanship here. This is like a game of financial chicken. The Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, accused the Democrats of playing with fire, and he said that while flicking a lit match at a 1970s <laughs> sofa. But don't As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Now she gets her kicks in Stepney, not in Knightsbridge anymore. So don't play. Yes, the clock is ticking down to Tuesday, when apparently the U.S. government may default on the interest it owes to U.S. bondholders if Congress fails to raise the debt ceiling. President Obama and House Speaker John Boehner engaged in dueling debt speeches last Monday night, each asserting that the other guy's party was to blame for putting the country in peril. Much of the coverage gave the speeches equal weight, suggesting both arguments were of equal veracity, 
But were they? I asked Lori Robertson, the managing editor at factcheck.org, that question. She said it was a matter of opinion. Then I asked her what she saw as the most egregious misstatement of the evening. Maybe I would say Boehner said that Obama wants a blank check today, Mm -hmm. just as he did six months ago. You know, it's true. Six months ago, Obama did want to raise the debt ceiling without cutting spending. But the president has now offered spending cuts. His press secretary had said somewhere between $1.5 trillion and $1.7 trillion over 10 years. So that's not seeking a blank check. Obama said that raising the debt ceiling was routine. You didn't challenge that, but... Yeah, he's right. Since the 1950s, Congress has always passed it. Every president has signed it. That's true. But this debt ceiling increase is the largest in history. So that may not be seen as routine. That's kind of along the lines of Boehner saying that last week the House had passed a plan with bipartisan support. Technically true, but misleading. Both Republicans and Democrats voted for the Cut Cap and Balance Act in the House, but only five out of 193 Democrats voted in favor of it. Who's to blame for the crisis? It takes two to create an impasse, so both parties are to blame here for failing to come to an agreement. Is it true, though, that most of the compromise has been made by the president? Well, I I mean, I think that's a matter of opinion. Explain to me how that's a matter of opinion. Obama has been willing to cut a huge chunk of the money going out for a smaller percentage of money coming in, the only thing that the Republicans have supported is cutting the money going out, right? Um, yeah, I guess I guess that that's correct. Um, you know, it's hard for us to say, oh, somebody's blocking this more than the other. We're you know we're really we're not privy to these meetings either. I didn't mean to back you against the wall, but I have to say, if you guys aren't going to be unmealy mouthed about this, then who will be? Well, it's not that we're being mealy-mouthed. I mean, we have just say constantly in our stories that we don't take an opinion one way or the other. You know, a lot of people, particularly during the presidential campaigns, will ask us, well, who lies more? And can't you give me a ranking on, you know, who's the most truthful politician? And first off, we don't want to look like we're endorsing someone, so we don't want to do that. But we're going to tell you what we found. And if we found it to be horribly misleading, maybe you didn't, but we're going to lay it out there and readers are going to have to make those decisions for themselves. Lori, thank you very much. Thank you. Lori Robertson is managing editor at factcheck.org. In a recent New York Times column about the coverage of the debt ceiling crisis, Paul Krugman was not reluctant to call out the press for failing to communicate what he saw as the dangerous intransigence of the Republican position. He wrote, quote, What all this means is that there is no penalty for extremism, no way for most voters who get their information on the fly rather than doing careful study of the issues to understand what's really going on. Ryan Chittam addressed the would-be objective reporter's conundrum in a recent post on CJR.org. We do have a problem with dealing with extreme positions. Sometimes we just ignore them, and other times when they clearly have an impact, we just don't know how to tell our readers that this is crazy, you know, that people are willing to sink the credit of the United States government. So are you saying it's all the Republicans' fault? 
No, I'm not saying that at all. Harry Reid, he could have raised the debt ceiling when Democrats had control of Congress. He wanted the Republicans to share the political blame for it. That was a political calculation that backfired pretty spectacularly, and they bear responsibility for that for playing politics. But the closer you get to D-Day, the bigger the chance that it will spiral out of control, and I think that's what's happened here. The Democrats miscalculated, and the Republican leadership has too, but the responsibility there is not equal. When you're talking about making a political calculation eight months ago versus eight days out, they're, they're two different stories. You know, it just makes anyone who goes down this road such an easy target for accusations of liberal bias. What do you say to people who know they're going to walk down that road? Our highest obligation is to find out the truth and, and to tell it regardless of the consequences. If we don't do that, then we're not doing our jobs. The press has a real aversion to being accused of ideological bias or bias of any sort. You know, we're kind of above the fray. We're just going where the facts lead us. I think the problem there is that it's easier to say he said, she said, rather than determining whether one side is telling the truth and one side is not. It's much harder to do that. It takes much more time. Right now you work for the Columbia Journalism Review. You used to be a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Right. Could you really report the way that you say people ought to report when you were a reporter for the journal? And I don't even mean the journal under Murdoch. No, I, I don't think that this is something that the pre-Murdoch journal was excluded from at all. Uh, this is the culture of American journalism, and the journal is very much a part of that. This is a cultural problem. It's not something that British journalism, as much as we've criticized them over the past few weeks, has. That's because people expect British journalism to be, at least in part, ideological. And one reason why the Brits admire American journalism is that, supposedly, it's not, at least the good stuff. That's the dilemma, right? How do you split the difference between being milk toast and not willing to call people out and being ideological? These are facts. I think you just have to report the context. You don't have to spell it out and say, you know, Republicans are at fault. That, you know, that doesn't have to be your lead. Ryan, thank you very much. Thank you. Ryan Chittam is the deputy editor of The Audit, which analyzes the business press for the Columbia Journalism Review. Whenever I'm asked to make my dreams real, I tell them you do. You love the same. The sheer recklessness of the Tea Party Republicans is astonishing to watch. They're willing to play a sick game of chicken with our entire economy 
even as the latest figures show that economy barely limping along at a paltry 1.3% rate. Speaker Boehner has shown little willingness and less ability to control the Tea Party fanatics. They're willing to damage the country's credit rating, which would raise interest rates across the board and make it more costly for you to borrow for a mortgage or get a student loan and more costly for businesses to borrow too to meet payroll or to buy new machinery. As a result, the economy would go down. Actually, either way, the economy is going to go down. If the U.S. defaults, it'll swoon right away. And if the Democrats in Congress and if President Obama accept the ransom notes that the Tea Party is issuing, the economy will go into a long slide because of the savage cuts they're demanding. So it's a lose-lose for the American people. But it's a win-win for the most ideological Republicans who hate government so much and hate Obama so much that they're willing to make everyone else pay for their hatred. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Here is your first quote. Put on your helmet, buckle your strap, run onto the field, and beat the bleep out of them. That was Republican Congressman Mike Kelly summing up his party's attitude of compromise and common purpose. <laughs> As what crisis continued this week? Uh, the debt ceiling crisis. Indeed, Ooh. raising the debt ceiling. I mean this... Sincerely, it is an exciting time to be alive. How often do you get to witness history? It's once in a generation when a generation ruins everything for the next generation. <laughs> Someday you'll say to your grandkids, yes, I was there when the United States defaulted. Now, don't bogart that last can of dog food, Sonny. <laughs> I think, you know, that we'll probably celebrate this week every year as National Stupid Week. Really? <laughs> Well, don't you, don't you just wish these people had mothers? <laughs> I, 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 I assume you believe they had mothers at one point. They're just I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but I think someone should send them into their room with no electronics. I think so. No. I don't know how you get, you know, John Boehner trying to get b votes from the Tea Party guys. If all they believe in is cutting, what do you, you know, you can't give them fat. You can't give them pork. You might, the only way I can figure is you go to a Tea Party guy and say, do you have a particular program we could cut out that would hurt someone you hate? <laughs> it, it wasn't going to be like this. Do you remember this? Just a few weeks ago, yeah. President Obama and Speaker Boehner, they were putting together this grand bargain. They were working late into the night. They were playing golf. They mm -hmm. were sending messages to each other at their press conferences. Mm -hmm. Boehner would make a little O with his fingers and tap his heart, you know? <laughs> But then Eric Kanner, who's sort of the leader of the Tea Party wing in the House, started hanging around and whispering things to Boehner. He pulled Boehner away from Obama and the deal. Cantor is the Yoko Ono of American <laughs> politics. <laughs> All right? We understand he had his priorities, but did he and Boehner have to do that press conference in bed? That was... <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky I didn't mention their photo shoot with Andy Leibovitz. You don't want to see that. <laughs> 
troubling. Uh, and it was amazing how much the Democrats conceded. Senator Harry Reid put forward a bill that was all spending cuts, no tax hikes, and they promised to always be available to drive any Republican to the airport and to help them move. <laughs> it is, honestly, though, for the first time in maybe years, I'm not just going quickly past C-SPAN to try to get to ESPN4. <laughs> right. So there's that. Right. You it's know exciting. what I mean? It's kind of, in, you never know what's going to happen in, in the well of the Senate right now. My brain's I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. So uh, there's a vote going on as we speak. Don't really know what's what's happening, but as I say, I care so very, very much. But uh, it's clear that the negotiations have moved in a, in a particular direction um, and that both sides are angling to uh, either claim credit or avoid blame. But uh, most of the... Uh, Mo- the, the, the most sinuous, shall I say, the most sinuous dance in all this, I, I, I would nominate the uh, occupant of the White House. And for further enlightenment into that, let's, uh, let's turn on the TV. I'm upstairs. How was your day? Oh, pretty rough. No, what's the matter, sugar? Are they still criticizing you for buying clothes at Target? No. Quite the opposite. Matter of fact, I think right now I'm more of a man of the people than someone else in this house I could name. No. But I have been having a devil of a time here. Oh, really? Yeah. Just no luck with this recipe. No. Well, can't the White House chef help you? No. It's for my own project. Oh. Well, what are you trying to do? Make an organic Twinkie. <laughs> oh, I have to admit, that does sound good. Mm-hmm. How was your day, sweetie? Oh, the usual. Speech about being the adult in the room. Press conference about being the adult in the room. And then, worst of all, trying, trying to, be to be the, the adult in the room. room. You know, I, I, I guess we've sort of been doing the same thing, Sugar. Really? What's that? Well, taking out everything good and trying to make it go down without people ganging. Well, I suppose, but... Hey, kitten. Why the long face? You're not a horse. <laughs> no, I'm not a horse. No. 
And what's wrong? <laughs> Nothing. Hmm. Maybe I better let you two have some mom's not gonna overhear this time. <laughs> <sighs> okay, Pumpkin. What's up? <sighs> the boys won't let us use the gym. Really? Mm-hmm. How come? Oh, it's stupid. Hey, honey. Everything's stupid. <laughs> but uh, what did they say? Oh, they say we're not serious basketball players, mm -hmm. and it's a waste of gym time to let us have the court. Wow, that is stupid. I mean, haven't they ever seen Lisa Leslie or Tamika Catchings? Uh, oh, I know there's more. But, Daddy, I'm four foot eight. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to play for the Fever or the Mercury or even the Mystics. Mm -hmm. But it's just so unfair. Well, honey, I'm, I'm sure there's some way to work it out. Uh, let's see. Um, would some chocolate ice cream help? <laughs> no. Oh, some, uh, what are these, pickled watermelon balls? Uh-huh. No, I'd offer you some organic Twinkies, but I know better. Well, look, Kitten, mm -hmm. how can they keep you from using the gym? Bunch of their friends have reserved the gym all day long, all through the summer, 6 a.m. to midnight, seven days a week. Well, the good news is they've got to get tuckered out by August, don't you think? They don't even come and play. They just plunk down a deposit and go home and play video basketball. Oh, well, have you offered to split the time half and half with them? Uh-huh. Dominic McCoy, he's kind of their leader. Mm -hmm. He says he's not interested in half of anything. He says he won't even watch halftime shows on TV. Wow. Kind of hard line. Yeah. Well, how about if you knew someone who knew someone in the video game industry who could offer them the MVP version of the NBA video game with all the secret extras? I offered them that. And? They signed up, used the password your lobbyist friend gave us, and they still won't let us use the gym. Oh, well, he's not really a lobbyist, honey. Daddy. And he's not really a friend. But... Any other bright ideas, Dad? Hey there, let's keep a tone of respect in your voice when you're being condescending to your father. But now look, honey, I, I know it's not what you and your friends would really want, but in situations like this, you just might have to settle for something less than the ideal. <laughs> like what, Dad? Well, how about if you and your friends offer to pay the boys back for their deposits and then you get to use the gym when, well, maybe when it's closed? Dad, to put it mildly, that sounds counterintuitive. No, you're right, Kitten. It sure does. Maybe you should pay for their deposits and then dare them to keep control of the gym until school starts up again. What do we do in the meantime? Oh, I don't know. Well, you could help your mother try to make organic Twinkies. Mom! Mm -hmm. Mom, you are listening in. Well, I am your mother. And we do have the technology. But you see, Kitten, mm -hmm. you don't have to win to show people you're strong. Sometimes the only way to teach a lesson to folks who don't want to compromise is to show them the price of getting their own way. Which is? Not getting dates for the Christmas dance. Oh, these boys don't go to the dance. Well, then they're just going to miss out on meeting nice girls like my kitten. Or daddy. And you get to be the grown-up at the dance. Now, come on, everybody. Let's go watch Jeopardy.
I close as promised with a special comment on the debt deal. Our government has now given up the concept of right and wrong. We have in this deal declared that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all political incumbents are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are renomination, re-election, and the pursuit of hypocrisy. We have in this deal gone from the four freedoms to the four great hypocrisies. We have superseded Congress to facilitate $750 billion in domestic cuts, including Medicare, in order to end an artificially induced political hostage crisis over debt originating from the bills run up by a Republican president who funneled billions of taxpayer dollars to the military-industrial complex by unfunded, unnecessary, and unproductive wars, enabled in doing so by the very same Republican leaders who now cry for balanced budgets, and we have called it compromise. And those who defend it have called it a credit to a pragmatic president who wins some sort of political points. Because having stood for almost nothing here, he gave away almost nothing for which he stood. It would be comical if it were not tragic. Either way, it is a signal moment in our history in which both parties have agreed and codified that the political structure of this nation shall now be based entirely on hypocrisy and political self-perpetuation. Let us start with the first of the great hypocrisies, the committee. The Republican dogs can run back to their corporate masters and say they have forced one and one half trillion dollars in cuts and palmed off the responsibility for them on this nonsensical super Congress committee. For two and a half brutal years, we have listened to these Tea Party mountebanks screech about the Constitution of the United States as if it were the revealed word and not the product of other, albeit far better, politicians. They demand the repeal of amendments they don't like, and the strict interpretations of the ones they do, and the specific citation of authorization within the Constitution for every proposed act or expenditure or legislation except this one. Where does it say in the Constitution that the two houses of Congress can, in effect, create a third house to do their dirty work for them, to sacrifice a few congressmen and senators so the vast majority of incumbents can tell the voters they had nothing to do with this? This leads to the second of the great hypocrisies. How in the same breath the Republicans can create an extra constitutional super Congress and yet also demand a constitutional amendment to force the economic stupidity that would be a mandated balanced budget. Firstly, pick a side, ignore the Constitution or adhere to it. And of what value would this mandated balanced budget be? Our own history proves that at a time of economic crisis, if the businesses aren't spending and the consumers aren't spending, the government must spend. Our ancestors were the lab rats in the horrible experiments of the Hoover administration that brought on the Great Depression, in which the government curled up into a ball while it simultaneously insisted the economy should heal itself. When, in times of crisis, then and now, the economy turns out to be comprised entirely of a bunch of rich people who will sit on their money no matter if the country starves. Forgotten in the Republican voodoo dance, dressed in the skins of the mythical balanced budget, triumphant over the severed head of short-term retrenchment that they can hold up to their moronic followers, are the long-term implications of the mandated balanced budget. What happens if there's ever another war, or another terrorist attack, or another natural disaster? or any other emergency that requires a government to spend one dollar more than it has. A constitutional amendment denying us the right to run a deficit is madness, and it will be tested by catastrophe sooner than any of its authors with their underdeveloped imaginations that can count only contributions and votes can contemplate. And the third of the great hypocrisies is hidden inside the shell game that is this super Congress. 
The Super Congress is supposed to cut evenly from domestic and defense spending. But if it cannot agree on those cuts, or Congress will not endorse them, there will be a trigger that automatically cuts a trillion two or more. But those cuts will not necessarily come evenly from the Pentagon. We are presented with an agreement that seems to guarantee the gutting of every local sacred cow from the Defense Department. Except if the congressmen and senators to whom the cows are sacred disagree and overrule or sabotage the Super Congress. Or except if for some reason a 12-member committee split evenly along party lines can't manage to avoid finishing every damned vote six to six. We're cutting defense. Unless we're not. The fourth of great hypocrisies is the evident agreement to not add any revenues to the process of cutting. Not only is the impetus to make human budget sacrifices out of the poor and dependent formalized, but the rich and the corporations are thus indemnified again and given more money not merely to spend on themselves and their own luxuries, but more vitally they are given more money to spend on buying politicians, buying legislatures, buying courts, buying entire states all of which can be directed like so many weapons in the service of one cause and one cause alone making by statute and ruling the further protection of the wealthy at the expense of everybody else untouchable inviolable permanent the white house today boasted of loopholes to be closed and tax breaks to be rescinded later by a committee a committee that is yet to be formed there are no new taxes except the stealth ones enacted on 99 out of 100 Americans by this evil transaction every dollar cut from the safety net is another dollar added to the citizens cost for education for security for health for life itself it is another dollar he can't spend on making a better life for himself or at least his children it is another dollar he must spend instead on simply keeping himself alive where is the outrage over these great hypocrisies do you expect it to come from a corrupt and corrupted media for whom access is of greater importance than criticizing the failure of a political party or defending those who don't buy newspapers or can't leap website paywalls or could not afford cable TV? Do you expect it to come from a cynical and manipulative political structure? Do you expect it from those elected officials who no longer know anything of government or governance but only perceive how to get elected or how to pose in front of a camera and pretend to be leaders? Do you expect it from politicians themselves who will merely calculate whether or not it's right based on whether or not it will get them more contributions? Do you expect it will come from the great middle ground of this country with a population obsessed with entertainment, video games, social media, sports, and trivia? Where is the outrage to come from? From you! It will do no good to wait for the politicians to suddenly atone for their sins. They're too busy trying to keep their jobs to do their jobs. It will do no good to wait for the media to suddenly remember its origins as the free press, the watchdog of democracy envisioned by Jefferson. They are too busy trying to get exclusive details about exactly how the bank robbers emptied the public's pockets to give a damn about telling anybody what they looked like or which way they went. It will do no good to wait for the apolitical public to get a clue. They can't hear the clue through all the chatter and scandal and diversion and delusion and illusion. The betrayal of what this nation is supposed to be about did not begin with this deal, and it surely will not end with this deal. There is a tide pushing back the rights of each of us, and it has been artificially induced by union bashing and the sowing of hatreds and fears, and now this ever more institutionalized economic battering of the average American. 
It will continue and it will crush us. Because those who created it are organized and unified and hell-bent. And the only response is to be organized and unified and hell-bent in return. We must find again the energy and the purpose of the 1960s and early 1970s, and we must protest this deal and all the goddamn deals to come in the streets. We must arise non-violently but insistently. General strikes, boycotts, protests, sit-ins, non-cooperation, takeovers. But modern versions of that resistance, facilitated and amplified by a weapon our predecessors did not have, the glory that is instantaneous communication. It is from an old and almost cliched motion picture that the wisdom comes. First, you've got to get mad. I cannot say to you, meet here or there at this hour or that one, and we'll peacefully break the back of government that now exists merely to get its functionaries reelected. But I can say that the time is coming when the window for us to restore the control of our government to ourselves will close. And we had damn well better act before then. Because this deal is more than a tipping point in which the government goes from defending the safety net to gutting it. This is wrong. And while our government has now declared that it has given up the concept of right and wrong, you and I have not and will not do so. Thanks for listening, everyone. Obviously, this show went a little bit long as I wanted to get all these clips in. They're very time sensitive. The vote that uh, all of this has been discussing actually happened today as I'm trying to get this show out. And uh, so, of course, um, you know, go look up the news yourself and, and you'll get the recap from, from me on a later date. As for right now, I'm not going to really add anything to this episode. I just want to let it stand on its own. But I do want to particularly thank uh, a, a listener, Daniel, from Twitter. His uh, handle is Onyx Shard. And without him, I literally would not have heard that, uh, that clip from Keith Olbermann that we just heard at the end of the show in time to include it in the episode. He uh, sent me a tweet and with the link to that clip. In the morning, just after, you know, the, the, immediately following the night when Keith had done that commentary, uh, it had not been published to the podcast feed yet where I normally get all of his stuff, and I, I simply wouldn't have seen it in time without him. So that's just a really cool cool example of listeners sending in clips and, and helping out the show, and I think I thought that was a great Great addition. Uh, I would have hated for it to have been missed simply based on timing. So, uh, so thanks to Daniel for that. Now, I just want to thank a couple of members who make the show possible. Martina M. signed up for her Socialist Yearly Membership back on April 1st. And Larry F. signed up for a Leftist Monthly Membership and, and has stuck with the show since then um, and signed up back on November 17th. So, so huge thanks to uh, Martina and Larry and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. You can help spread the word by uh, sharing individual clips that you enjoy. Just go to the show notes and uh, and share to your heart's content all over your social networks and uh, and beyond. You can stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 
11 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right